I'm just going to pray and then trust that God will come and minister to us this morning. Father God, we want to thank you that as we reflect on the, the wonderful story of Easter and what you did for us that's so central to what we believe as Christians. I want to pray that you would make it fresh for us again and that we'd be just have that sense of wonder again of who you are and how you've touched and changed our lives. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a few, uh, I don't know if it was in a couple of months ago, we had a time away with our leadership team. We had a day away, and we did different things together, and it was great fun together. But one of the things I did was I, I gave this teaching on Jesus washing his disciples' feet, because we were really interested in thinking about us as a leadership team, and how our Main, our mandate from God is to serve and minister to those that God has called us to leave to lead. Uh, we're not there to lord it over anyone. We come, we're here to come and serve. And so it just seems appropriate um, to share that message again this morning. And I really hope that it encourages you. So I want us to look at this beautiful passage, which was the night before Jesus went to the cross, essentially. So it's revisiting that moment, uh, which was such a point in time in his journey and his relationship with his disciples. So we're going to read together, um, if it comes up on the screen, from John 13, verse 1 to 17. Um, so I'll read that for you. It says, uh, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Oh, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. 
truly. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So a very beautiful story, uh, but one that's maybe also familiar for us. But I'd love to unpack it a little bit this morning and try understand something more about what's the significance of this, in some ways, quite a strange story uh, in our Western uh, 21st century thinking. And I'd love us to understand it a little bit. So just to give it a bit of a, a biblical context, um, this was written by John, who was one of the disciples who was especially close to Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. And uh, John is now looking back at the life of Jesus to that day before Jesus was crucified. And he now is recalling with hindsight what must have been a very confusing and distressing last few hours. You know, when you're in the middle of something, you just everything's just happening. You don't actually think and analyze and think, oh, well, this means that. And so this is after some time, John has been able to reflect. And now he thinks back to that last dinner, that last supper together with Jesus and his disciples. And now he's starting to process it. And he says these beautiful words that even though Jesus knew his life was at the end, he says that because Jesus knew that the dreaded hour had come that he was waiting for, it says that he loved his friends, the disciples, to the very end. Isn't that a beautiful thing that, that uh, John says about Jesus? When he thinks back now, after all that happened, Jesus was going through incredible personal turmoil and knew what he was going to be facing. But the testimony of his life was that he loved that ragtag bunch right to the very end. Uh, his disciples, I suppose, weren't very loving and thoughtful towards him. We think later of when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says, three stay awake and pray with me, and they all fall asleep. Um, they, were, they were not aware of how distressing and torturous this was for Jesus but still his love for them never failed, and he continued to pour himself out for their sakes, even when his need was greater than theirs. So that's just some of the biblical context. John is writing this letter, thinking back to that event, to that night. Now I just want to unpack something of the cultural context, because there's some things that happen here in the story that probably we don't do today. And um, I'd like to explain it like this. Um, there's, a, there's a word, if you, if you study the Bible and in a more theological way, there's a, a word called hermeneutics, which we don't need to even remember. But what that means is how we interpret Scripture. And I like to explain it like this. So I'm going to imagine that this row of people, this, this section of people, you're a river, okay, and then all the people on this side, you're one side of the river bank. And then all the people on this side, you're at the other side of the river bank. Now, the people on this side of the river bank, you lived 2,000 years ago when Jesus lived. And you have a certain uh, historical context. You've got certain things that were happening during your time. That's, that's how you live your life. And then we cross over the river 
where you just stand the river, and we cross over the river, and we come to the 21st century postmodern world that we all live in today. That's where you all are, okay? You, those guys, with all that we're dealing with in our world today. So whenever we read scripture, we are basically taking ourselves back 2,000 years ago and trying to understand a writer who was writing in that time with that historical mindset into a culture and a place that was very, very specific 2,000 years ago. You know how much change has happened in 2,000 years. So that is what we are trying to understand. We want to unpack what it was like for them there. And then hermeneutics is about crossing over the bridge to the river and saying, well, that's what they understood then. How does that apply to us today in the 21st century? How can we find God's word for us out of what was happening then and what was written then? Okay, so that's a bit of what we're going to do today. And uh, I'll, yeah, I'll take it a little bit further just now. So, so let's understand these people over here that live in this 2,000 year ago part when John was writing. So I'm sure how many of you have been on holiday to the Mediterranean, to Greece, or even to Israel? Have any of you been there in the summer? Pretty warm, balmy, probably a bit like the guys are experiencing in Cambodia. Maybe not so humid though. Um, but it was very, very warm and hot. And I'm sure when you've been on holiday there that you tend to wear sandals. And in those days, people would have maybe just gone barefoot or wore sandals to go about their daily activity. And they travel by foot. So no trainers to close your, your shoes, to close your feet. No fancy cars, no motorbikes, no bicycles. If you had to get from A to Z, you had to walk. Unless you were fairly wealthy and you had a, a little cart and horse, then you could maybe go, go that way. But you walked everywhere in your sandals. There were no tarred roads in this part of the world. And so what do you think your feet looked like after the end of the day? Pretty stinky, right? Lovely toe jam between the toes, <laughs> sweaty, not very nice. So that was what it was like to live 2,000 years ago. That was the kind of, if you went to podiatry, that's what it was like for your feet. Um, so it makes sense that foot washing, uh, like eating and sleeping, became an essential daily activity that you just couldn't do without. And it was usually like the last cleansing act that you did before retiring to bed, because that just makes sense, doesn't it? You're not going to climb into clean sheets with dirty feet. You're going to wash your feet before you go to bed. And after the feet were washed, the doors were closed, the working garments were removed, and one went to sleep. And we've got that little story in Luke uh, 11 where Jesus tells a parable of someone knocking at midnight on someone's door saying, do you have any bread? I've got a visitor that's arrived and I don't have any bread. And the person shouting down from their window, what, I'm already in bed and basically, if you were in this culture in this time, you would understand, I've washed my feet. I'm not getting out again and dirtying my feet a second time. That's the inference. So foot washing was very important, not just in Hebrew culture, but also in, for the Greeks and Romans. It was a very important part of their daily activities too. 
And basically, if a person did not wash their feet for a day, they were considered uncivilized and would be very harshly criticized. In fact, there's an actual poem that was written by Juvenal. You can see where he, what his name led to, Juvenile. Um, and he wrote a poem called Satire 3. Um, and the, in his poem, there's this character called Umbricious, um, who's leaving Rome for a better life in the country. And he lists all the many ways in which Rome has become an unbearable place to live. Um, and so in his poem, he describes how at dusk, after everyone has washed their feet, they would then splash the water out onto the street, and anyone unfortunate enough to be walking along a Roman street at night will be drenched in stinky foot water. So there was a lot of things around foot washing that on this side of the river we were completely oblivious to. It's a big part of the culture. Um, in fact, the Roman emperor Caligula, he was a tyrant, and he forced the elders in his senate to wash his feet to put them into place. So he really demeaned them by insisting that they do that. And in Israel, when someone came to your home to visit you, it was customary to wash their feet as an expression of hospitality and welcome. So foot washing, the person who actually went down on their knees to wash the feet was the lowest of the low demeaning work. It was, if you had a Jewish slave and you were in Israel, it would be beneath them. You wouldn't even let your Jewish slave wash the feet. That was usually a foreign woman slave that was considered the lowest of the low. I'm not saying that we agree with that. We just try and understand how people thought on this side of the river. So it was a demeaning role to, to wash someone's dirty feet. So do you all understand what it's like in your part of the world 2,000 years ago? Right. So let's try and understand what actually happened at this Passover meal. I'm going to read verses 3 to 5 again. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we have a sense that John wrote this many, many years after the fact, but he remembered every single detail of that unforgettable night. It must have really imprinted on his mind. It's almost like he's retelling it uh, all like an eyewitness account. You've got these short uh, staccato sentences just trying to say this happened and then this happened and this happened. He, it's, it's vivid in his mind. And as I said before, it was customary for the lowest servant of the house to wash the feet of the guests as they came into the house, uh, especially for a formal meal like this. They were having a Passover meal. Um, but somehow, we don't get to know why, but for some reason, uh, this didn't happen when Jesus and the disciples came to this house for the meal. They ate their meal with dirty feet. Now, this was probably more awkward than we might think on this side of the river because of the sandals that they wore and the, how dirty their feet were, as we've already explained. 
But secondly, it's also important for us to understand the arrangement of how they sat at that meal, at that table. And they had a table that was called a triclinium, uh, which is also a word you don't have to remember after today. And it's, it was a big U-shaped table like this. And then the person who was the guest of honor would sit at the, the top of the U, and then everyone would sit around the U-shaped table like that. So if you uh, think of the Da Vinci's Last Supper, uh, it was a very long table that he portrayed because he was trying to get everyone into the, to the painting. So not like that at all. It was a very low coffee shape, coffee table level uh, table, very low down. In fact, just a little tip if you're into art, uh, there's a fantastic 1500 15th or 16th century copy of da Vinci's um, painting at the Royal Academy. You have to go see it's life-size. It's exactly the a replica of, of da Vinci's work. Anyway, that's an aside, but it's really amazing. Okay, so the, the guests, so they sat at this table based on their status at the meal, and where, how close you sat to the host really reflected how honored you were at this meal. And they, they didn't sit on, ta on chairs. They had these big cushions that were strewn all around the, the edges of the table. And you lay on your tummy and with your feet at the back. So feet were very visible. They weren't tucked under a table. Uh, unwashed feet were easily seen. And the smell... <laughs> I was going to tell a funny story, but then I thought, Helen, just pull it in, rein it in. Uh, no, it's to do with my slippers, but no, <laughs> oh, I won't. <laughs> anyway, I can just see Anne going like, but he's not here. <laughs> so, 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 where were we? Unwashed feet, very stinky at this meal. So, none of the disciples were very interested or dared to condescend to wash each other's feet. There was clearly a need here. So they all just sat there having their meal with the stench of stinky feet in the air. Um, and so we get to this point in the supper, it just says Jesus got up. Uh, it was as if Jesus thought, okay, come on guys. It's clear that you would rather hold on to your pride and assert your status than take the initiative to get each other's feet washed. You see, I think any of them would have really been glad to wash Jesus' feet, but they could not wash his feet without having to wash everyone else's feet. And that would have been an intolerable admission of inferior, inferiority among their fellow competitors for the top position in the disciples' hierarchy. So no one got their feet washed. And according to Jewish laws and traditions regarding the relationship between a teacher and his disciples, a teacher had no right to demand or expect that his disciples could wash his feet. And it was absolutely unthinkable that the master would wash his disciples' feet. That's why Peter protested so much about Jesus' actions. But Jesus' last act of love towards his disciples is to wash their smelly feet. It's the last thing he did. His last time with them. He ate a meal with them and he washed 
their feet, an extreme act of servanthood. Now, they wouldn't have understood this at the time, but reflecting back, Jesus was actually giving them a parable in action. He was acting out a parable for his disciples. Jesus knew that actions speak louder than words, don't they? If someone's done something, it imprints on you so vividly than just the words that they've said. So he wanted to teach the proud, arguing disciples about true humility. He didn't just say it, he showed it. So we've got these little parallel actions that reflect a meaning. So Jesus rose from the supper, a place of rest and comfort, and it was a parable of the fact that Jesus rose from his throne in heaven, his place of rest and comfort and glory. And then it says, Jesus laid aside his garments, taking off his covering. And that is a picture that Jesus laid aside his glory, taking off his heavenly covering. Jesus took a towel and girded himself ready for work. Jesus took the form of the lowliest of servants and came ready to serve and to do his father's work amongst us. Jesus poured water into a basin ready to clean. Jesus poured out his blood to cleanse us from guilt and the penalty of sin. Jesus sat down again after washing the feet. <clears throat> and so we know that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father after cleansing us. You know, decades later when Peter writes his letter to the Christians and he writes this beautiful section about humility, he put it like this. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility in 1 Peter 5 verse 5. More literally, if you actually looked at the original, Peter wrote, wrap the apron of humility around yourself. What Jesus did there remained in the heart and mind of Peter for the rest of his days. Now, for all of us on this side of the, the river, don't worry, we're coming to you soon, but there's something else we also need to understand that only these people really know, and that is slaves and crucifixion. Now, if foot washing was the task of the lowest slave, public crucifixion was a unique threat to the slave class. With a few exceptions, Roman citizens and the upper classes were spared from crucifixion, but slaves were especially vulnerable. You see, crucifixion was a public tool to discourage dishonesty, retaliation, and rebellion amongst the slave class. And we read in uh, 71 BC, there was a, a slave rebellion that was suppressed in Sparta, and it's, there's record of over 6,000 slaves were crucified along the Via Appa, which is the road between Capua and Rome. 6,000 slaves on crosses all the way along that road. In other instances, if a slave was caught breaking the law, the entire slave community within a single household could be rounded up and crucified together, irrespective of individual guilt. So one person stepped out of line, the whole household, whole household could be crucified. So if you were a slave, 
crucifixion held a, a terrible dread and a real reality over your life. Public crucifixions kept slaves in line. So much so that the crucifixion eventually came to be known as the slave's punishment. Slavery and crucifixion merged in the social consciousness. You, you thought of them as synonymous. So what did all of this mean for our story and what we're looking at? And when we look again at Jesus' humble act of foot washing, we see why the disciples immediately were unable to grasp the significance of the act. Jesus lowered himself into the position of a lowly slave. He served like a slave. He washed the disciples' feet like the lowest of the low slave. But because ultimately he was preparing to die the dehumanizing death of a slave. He was acting out what was going to come to him. As he washed out the dirt from the disciples' toes, Jesus performed a parable of the cross. The disciples could not see the symbolic anticipation, not, not here and now. The full explanation of why Jesus washed their feet would only become clear after the substitutionary atonement for the Savior on Good Friday. Then they would look back and really begin to understand this deep act of humility in the cross that brought us once for all, head to toe, cleansing for our sin. And Paul writes these beautiful words and he makes this connection in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, like a slave, to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, every tongue that lived then, every tongue that lives now, will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the Lord, the God the, to the glory of God the Father. So, just to end off, let's just unpack those last two verses to understand how Jesus begins to explain what he did. Verses 12 to 14. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for that's what I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay, so now we come to this side of the river. How does what happened 2,000 years ago, how does it 
what does it mean for us? What is its importance for us? You know, we, like the disciples, would probably be very glad to wash Jesus' feet. But he tells us to wash one another's feet. Now, how many of you need your feet washed? You all look like you've all got very clean feet, all nicely shoed and, and woolly socks. I don't think Jesus is saying we literally need to go around washing each other's feet on the side of the river. Perhaps you do. Sometimes you do need to help if you're, someone's got dirty feet. Maybe that is something. But I don't think it's a literal transfer of that image to this time. What, is, what does it mean for us to wash each other's feet today? I think that anything that we do for each other that washes away the grime of the world and the dust of defeat and discouragement is foot washing. How we minister the grace of God to each other is a way that we can wash each other's feet. I love what Spurgeon says. He's such a wonderful writer in the 1800s, but he says, it's so easy for us to criticize those with dirty feet instead of washing them. He says, in the world, they criticize. They say, this is the business, and he says, this is the business of the press, and it's very much the business of private circles. I mean, it hasn't changed, has it, 100 years later? Hear how gossips say, do you see that spot? What a terrible walk that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. Uh, he has been very much in the mire, you can see, for there's traces upon him. That is the world's way. Christ's way is very different. He says nothing, but he takes the basin and begins to wash away the stain. Do not judge and condemn, but seek the restoration and improvement of the erring. Isn't that beautiful, how Spurgeon puts it? You know, and I think on this side of the river in our cancel culture, where you are canceled for being intolerant, um, which is ironic on lots of levels, the irony is plain. Because as Christians, we are called to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us, to wash their feet instead of judge, and to be a radical example modeled by Jesus. I think another thing about washing feet, and um, I, I did share some of this with the students uh, at, on campus, and I, I said, when one day when you have a baby, maybe those of you who've had a baby and you wash, bathe your new little baby for the first time, and you run that water into the baby's bath, you don't just put the baby in the bath. You have to actually see if the water's the right temperature. And how many of you mums and dads know what do you put in the water first to test if it's the right temperature? Your elbow. Anyone else didn't know that? There's a free tip. You put your elbow in the water because that's such a sensitive part. So you can feel whether the, the temperature of the water is the right temperature. So you don't make it too hot or too cold for your baby. And I want to say, if we're going to wash each other's feet, uh, we should be careful about the temperature of the water. Sometimes we can try and wash someone with our water if it's too hot, so we're too fervent and too zealous, and we just overwhelm them. Or 
our water is too cold, so we're just a little bit cold and removed and distant in heart to them. See, the temperature needs to be middle-tempered with kindness and with grace. Jesus is giving us the example of the kind of person that we should be if we are going to represent him. In the last verse, in verse 20, which we haven't read this morning, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, he's saying something like this. When I send you out in my name, under my authority with my word, you represent me. You represent me in such a way that if someone welcomes you and your message, they welcome me. So realize this, my disciples. I am preparing and authorizing you for an unspeakably high calling. If someone receives you, they receive God. There isn't a higher human calling than to represent me in this way. Now, what kind of person ought we to be if we are to carry out this highest calling? And the crystal clear answer is we are to be the kind of person who goes low in humble service, not the kind of person who's puffed up by amazing rank and privilege of the calling, but someone who really looks out for the interests of others, who does what is needed to show kindness and grace as a picture of Christ to that person. I love that when Jesus showed kindness and grace, it was very, very practical. And he just saw the need and he met it. He didn't say, didn't make a big fanfare about it. He didn't huff and puff and go, I'm going to have to do this. He just quietly got up, put on the towel, washed their feet, because that was what was needed. And he said, if you want to be like me, then, and represent me well. Be like me and do these things that I do. So what about us today on this side of the river? What does it mean for us? When I said hermeneutics, that word is about understanding that side of the river and coming back and applying it so we can see its cultural relevance today, there's another step that we have to take today when we read Scripture we have to ask that God's Logos word, his written word, becomes life-giving to us. And there's another word that is used, rhema word, which is where the word of God speaks so sharply and keenly into our own spirits. It's the one where it says it divides between soul and marrow. We know it's God's word to us so personally, so specifically. We need to ask God, Lord, what does it look like for me, Helen, in my life, with my relationships, with those that you've called me to be with and to minister to, how do you want me to wash your feet? What is your rhema word to me specifically in how I apply that beautiful Logos word for my life?